Hi, Misfits. This is Kevin, a.k.a. The Nun. And this is Kate. Just Kate. <laughs> but Kate, you have a skeleton costume. I do. This is our Halloween episode. Yay! Well, Halloween's tomorrow, but right. this is our Halloween, Halloween episode. Halloween episode. Whoop, whoop. Mm. Welcome to Horror Wel- Oh, we forgot to say that. <laughs> Welcome to Horror Wood. Terrifying. Also, it's hard for me to look at you right now because, like, I know it's you. Yeah. But your costume and makeup is so on point and so amazing that it's just like kind of freaking me out. Yay. I'm just over here boring in the same thing I wear every Halloween, which is a skeleton onesie. I like Kate's skeleton onesie. Thank you. It's not because I'm not original, it's just because I can't afford to get costumes and makeup. No, no, no. <laughs> See, budget. Yeah. Amazon, cheap yes. makeup, fun.com. Fun.com. Also known as HalloweenCostumes.com. Oh, okay. $29, baby. Oh, I love it. Right? Love it. And I'm only going to wear it like twice. I decided not to dress up tomorrow because I don't want to. I have to have some serious conversations tomorrow ah, for work. <laughs> I see. Okay. And the last time that happened, like I dressed up as a demon and I had to go to a committee meeting and like sit there and talk and about be, like, like my job oh god <laughs> and everyone was just like, <laughs> like what are you oh, doing here oh my god Ooh. uh you look amazing Thank we'll you. post pictures for sure <laughs> excellent and tomorrow on actual halloween day we have a little bonus video coming out that we're going to record with Kevin in his costume. Yes. And me in my onesie. Yes. Um, it's going to be on Patreon, but like the free portion of Patreon. So everyone can watch it and we'll, you know, shoot links to it through Instagram or Instagram, whatever. Instagram, Facebook. Yeah. Horrorwood pod- at Horrorwood Podcast. There you go. Shouting out the... Yes. Shout it all <laughs> out. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Genuine. Foshes, Genuine. What's up, homie? And if you don't know what we're talking about, go listen to Britney Spears' memoir. And, or Google Michelle, or Google Williams, Michelle Williams, Justin Timberlake. Just right. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, and speaking of shout outs, we have a new Patreon. <gasps> new Patreon. Heather Shaw, this is your shout out. Thanks for joining, Heather. I think Heather left a comment on our on the most recent post about- She did with the horror movies. Yeah. Yeah, because she, okay, has She made like, a spreadsheet. Of 250 horror horror movies that's insane i love it though heather i need to see that spreadsheet yes and i need to know if there were any on kevin's recommendation list that were on your list well that weren't or weren't on your list list. i'm curious to know heather we hope you're having a banger of a halloween thanks for joining heather kate and i went to a haunted house okay and it was my favorite haunted I'm so house glad it that was. I've ever been to. I love that. And I loved when I told you that and you were like, I've had better. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to be a downer. I hate when people do that to me. And I was like, meh. I 
thought it was so well done. I thought it was like, awesome. It was very cool. It was longer than I anticipated. Yeah. And it was out in the both, middle of nowhere. Both parts before and after. <laughs> we, waited we waited in two line. hours. Yes. Two hours in line. <laughs> but you know what? It was fine. It was fun. I mean, it was good atmosphere, good people, like good music. Oh my God. I the listened music to was that amazing. Shazam playlist. Oh, Kevin was Shazamming everything. I was dancing around my apartment last line. night, cleaning. It was good. It was really fun. And I, as someone who, as a child, was terrified of haunted houses and would never go, and even into adulthood, like I've always still been kind of scared. Yeah. Honestly, though, after I was buried alive at that one, I feel like nothing can scare me. And this one was just cool like Good. half of it's in the woods yeah. we should mention it's hell's gate haunted, hell's gate house. haunted house in lockport illinois yes and you have you know a day left to go to it so get on that and they they shuttle you out to it in a school bus like very creepy it's very through the woods it's really <laughs> creepy i i mean i really you know the lead up to it is really really cool i loved it I and they that. serve alcohol so while you're oh, waiting for two hours corn dogs everyone was really nice that worked there it was until great. you got in the haunted house it was the best haunted house you guys Good. there's a slide there's a slide and it really elevated things for me <laughs> i just have to say so hell's gate haunted house go do it go do it, it. was banging i love it what do you have for us today, Kevin? Kate. So this is kind of a multitude of different things. Ooh. All come culminating together in a story that comes together in a movie, which was in 1992. And then there's a sequel that came out in 2021. Yes. So a lot of the movie, which you watched. Yes, I've watched both of them. Which is amazing. Is very much a commentary on social issues in Chicago specifically. And you know what? I will say this. Well, they know by the title what this is. We're Candy talking Man. about Candyman. I was trying. I was like winding up to it. Oh, sorry. I know you're good. I was like, well, it's going to be in the title. It's so. going to be in the title. So you'll know. <laughs> but when I first saw the original, yeah. I was like 11 and it was at a Halloween party with a bunch of friends and I didn't get it. I didn't understand Me neither. the messages no. that were coming across. And... We were doing like Ouija boards and I'm sure people were going into the bathroom and like saying his name five times in the mirror. Oh, yeah. And I was also, that was in my scared era yeah. of like, everything's out everything's to get terrible. me. So I didn't get it. And then I watched the new one just recently because I didn't see it when it first came out. And I was like, oh, did not realize that that's what all of that oh, was absolutely. about. And, and then when you go back and watch the original, yeah. it really comes out. You're like, interesting. Holy but, shit. But yeah, I'm excited to hear... This background and everything that yeah. you have prepped for us so today. So this is the story of Ruthie Mae McCoy and the Candyman legend in movies. I probably should have just started with that. It's all right. Rather than like, oh, there's this thing. It's a social comedy. It's the nun in me. It's the nun in you. <laughs> Your costume's amazing. All right. A lot of this is going to be Ruthie's story. Okay. Because it is... So much more involved than I originally thought, and it Ooh. touches upon everything uh, that the movie talks about with okay. its themes and symbols. Ruthie Mae McCoy lived in the ABLA Homes housing project on Chicago's South Side. All right. A A L B. Oh no, I put ABLA and then I typed L A B A. I'm going to say ABLA Homes okay. was composed of Jane Adams Homes. Robert Brooks Holmes, Loomis Courts, and Grace Abbott Holmes. So it was so like a collection. ABLA, yeah. Yeah. 
Now I get it. Thank you, The Kate. last names. All of these homes combined included about 17,000 residents. Whoa. It's a ton. McCoy, a 52-year-old black woman, suffered from mental illness and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm. She went through her life afraid and was often paranoid. Mm. McCoy lived in apartment 1109 on the 11th floor of a 15-story brown Y-shaped tower at the end of a corridor in the Grace Abbott Homes Project, located at 1440 West 13th Street. Okay. So according to the research that I was doing, it was one of the most dangerous places you could live. Oh, shit. The housing projects in Chicago in general at this time in the 80s were a mess. The building didn't seem very welcoming or safe to its residents. The elevators were dark and didn't always work. Oh, I hate that. So on any given day, you never knew if the elevator was going to work. The stairwells were not lit. And many residents were suffering from addiction to cocaine and PCP. Gangs and violence were rampant and a daily occurrence. It was not great. So what I do want to start with is I want to give a brief history of Chicago public housing. Okay. And this is from the About section of the Chicago Public Housing Authority's website. Okay, great. Which is at uh, www.thecha.com, thecha.com. Okay. So CHA was created in 1937 to own and operate housing that was built by the federal government under President Franklin Roosevelt's Public Works Administration. The first three housing projects built in the late 1930s included Jane Adams, Jane Adams, Julius C. Lathrop, and Trumbull Park Homes. Okay. They were all part of Roosevelt's New Deal programs to provide affordable housing for low-income families and combat blight. After the 1965 landmark court decision in Gethro versus Chicago Housing Authority, in which a group of residents alleged that CHA engaged in racial discrimination mm-hmm. by building public housing solely in areas with high concentrations of poor minorities, yeah. CHA was placed into receivership, which was lifted May 2010. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's recent. That's crazy. Initially, public housing operated very similarly to private market housing, using income from rent to cover the costs of maintenance, operations, and adequate reserves. Although the cost of the land and construction was borne by the federal government. As the stock of public housing aged across the country, however, the cost to maintain the buildings rose, and along with that, the rent rose sure. as well. Right? Yep. There we go. It's an endless cycle. Ugh. So by the uh, by the time a rental subsidy program was passed in the early 1980s, the high concentrations of poverty and neglected infrastructure were way just too severe. Mm-hmm. By 1996, the operations of the authority uh, were in such disarray that the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development took control of the agency. They were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, this is messed up. They were like, we need to roll this back. Exactly. So in 2000, under the leadership of Mayor Richard M. Daley, the city of Chicago agreed to take back control of the CHA. Okay. And drafted the plan for transformation, which was an ambitious plan that called for the demolition of notorious high-rise developments, the comprehensive rehabilitation of all the other scattered site, senior, and lower-density family properties, and the construction of new mixed-income-slash-mixed-finance developments. So when they decided to tear it down, all those people were displaced? displaced. Completely. Wow. 
The guiding principle behind the plan is the comprehensive integration of low-income families into the larger physical, social, and economic fabric of the city. But what are you doing with the people who are already there? Exactly. It's fucked up. So I'm going to go back to Ruthie now. That was a brief history of CHA. Kind of this is this is happening in the throes of the neglect. Got what it. Happens to Thank Ruthie. you for that. Of course. I think it's important to recognize that history. Yes. So uh, Ruthie Mae McCoy was born in Hughes, Arkansas, and was one of eight children. Mm-hmm. She moved with her family to Chicago's South Side at a young age. Uh, black Southern families would often move up this way looking for prosperity, which was known as the Great Migration from the Jim Crow South to okay. escape persecution. Yes. Ruthie attended Phillips High School for about a year, but didn't complete. Okay. Um, she started showing signs of schizophrenia when she was in her 20s. Mm. Um, and she would talk to herself and then all of a sudden just get extremely angry for no apparent reason, which you know, are indicators of schizophrenia. What year was this when she started showing signs? Oh, I don't know the year. Okay. I I could do the math, but it was just in her 20s. So if she was in her 50s in the late 80s, then I'm guessing this is the late 60s. Okay. Or late 50s. Or late 50s. Okay. I think. One of those. I was just trying to get an idea historically of where (laughs) we were. No, it's okay. No, of course. Her mother and subsequently her family were devout Baptists, unfortunately. So no one took her mental illness seriously because they chalked it up to not being one with God. Her mom was like, oh, well, she's, you know, her belief has wavered. So that's why this is happening. You know, so she was kind of on her own after that. Oh, that's awful. Ruthie never married, but she did have boyfriends here and there. And she gave birth to a baby girl. Vernita when she was 27 years old at Cook County Hospital. Okay. The father didn't stay around though. Vernita didn't spend her whole childhood with her mother because Ruthie was in and out of institutions. Mm. Um, so where did the child go? Well, Vernita would end up staying with relatives during these periods okay. because her relatives were still in Chicago. Okay. She had some jobs here and there. Uh, Ruthie did in laundromats and, and as a housekeeper. Okay. But because she was had untreated mental illness, she wasn't able to hold down those jobs for very long, unfortunately. Got it. Yeah. After a flood in her Humboldt Park apartment, Ruthie applied for housing through the CHA, Chicago Housing Authority. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to be placed in a high rise. She put that in her request. Like, I really don't want that. Okay. But that's, that's what, she got, what she got. And she had to take it. Oh, what were her reasonings for not wanting to be in a high rise? It didn't. I couldn't find that. Oh, she okay. was. She just didn't want that. I okay. think. I think what I would guess or or speculate is that she knew the high rises was where all the bad shit happened. Got it. You know, that's that, kind of what I assumed. It had a. It definitely had a reputation, and especially at this time when she's applying to live there. Sure. Her daughter Vernita had to serve a jail sentence in 1983 due to some aggravated assault charges. Mm-hmm. And but once she was out, um, she and her boyfriend and two young children moved in with Ruthie at the ABLA. Okay. Ruthie didn't get along with Vernita's boyfriend. Mm. Just it was schism, and his name was Lewis Butler. Um, and the schism between them caused the family to move out, and leaving Ruthie on her own. Oh, okay. And this really hit Ruthie, like, really hard. Yeah, because basically her daughter chose some man over her. Yeah. That sucks. And she missed seeing her grandbabies. And this this made her mental illness even worse. Sure. Ruthie in the place that she lived was known as Miss May at Abbott. Mm. 
Uh, and she was known to curse at strangers and wave a stick at menacing teenagers. I get it. But <laughs> you're like the- same. <laughs> same girl. <laughs> I don't say that as a joke about mental illness. I'm just, I under, I even outside no, of that. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, but in the months prior to her death, she began to turn her life around. She started dressing nicely, acting pleasant, and left the projects on weekday mornings to go to school to get her GED. Oh, wow. Just all of, on her own volition? Just yeah. She wanted to better yep. herself? Great. Mm-hmm. She, so her teacher, Linda Norman, uh, said that Ruthie was a very good student, alert, bright, and dependable. She started out at the seventh grade level, but in a few months, she was already at the ninth grade level. Oh, great. So with the help of Social Security field reps and the Mount Sinai Psychiatric Center, Ruthie got supplemental security income, okay. which is federal aid for physically and mentally mentally not mentally disabled people her income went from 104 dollars per month to 340 okay the ssi paid her retroactively and the first check was a big one she wanted to use the money to get out of public housing sure but also got some new clothes household essentials and a new winter coat that just i mean especially for chicago that like breaks my heart yeah. that before that she didn't have a good winter coat. Yeah, exactly. Oh. She, Ruthie was well liked at the center. She was assertive and opinionated and a mother figure to younger women there. Okay. Uh, she stood her ground. She made so much progress in such a short amount of time. Her medication adjustments helped, but the center gave her a way to connect with a community of people outside of being afraid to be at home. Yeah. Oh, you know? that's, yeah. So she talked about how much she hated living in the projects and wanted out so badly. Mm. But unfortunately, Ruthie Mae McCoy's life would end at the Grace Abbott Housing Project. No! Oh, I hate this. I know. I really didn't like reading this. So there's this really long, long, amazingly detailed article from the Chicago Reader from the year 1987 by... Steve Bogira, and it covers everything. It's so long. Um, and the title read, They Came Through the Bathroom Mirror, A Murder in the Projects. Ruthie Mae McCoy was the type who talked to herself and crushed strangers on the street. Crushed I don't strangers? know what crushed. I think that's a idiom or something. Okay. Or I um, typed the wrong word, and I don't know what the actual one was. But when she called 911 to report that someone was coming through the medicine cabinet of her Abbott Holmes apartment, she might have been hallucinating, but she wasn't. Ooh, that's terrifying. I know. I mean, because we've seen it in the movie, but to think of that actually happening. Of yeah, that's, like, that's what the it's based on. Some rando mm-hmm. coming through your medicine cabinet. Medicine cabinet in the wall from the Fuck. apartment adjacent to her. This is the beginning, only the beginning, Kate. Like, sure. At 8.45 p.m. on April 22nd, 1987, Chicago police received a call from McCoy. She said, quote, I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street, and some people next door are totally tearing this down, you know, and then it kind of goes off into garbled. Okay. Um, it seemed that the dispatcher couldn't hear her very well, but figured out the gist of what she was saying. Like that's when they were tearing down the wall? Is yeah. Is that what she's saying? Essentially. Okay. Like someone's breaking into my apartment. Sure. Something's happening. Ruthie said, yeah, they throwed the cabinet down. I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can read. You can reach my bathroom. They want to come 
through the bathroom. Oh my goodness. The dispatcher asks for her address, which she provides, and notes that the elevator is working today. Oh, that is, (laughs) you know what, because this comes up in, not to like veer off course, but it also came up in the Rebecca Schaefer case. Yeah. Because her elevator wasn't working that day. Mm -hmm. Or it was the bell. Never mind. Sorry. Well, no, it's something that should be there. Right. Landlords, fix your shit. Fix your shit. The man on the phone says that he will send the police to her. Okay. However, the dispatcher didn't quite understand what McCoy meant about throwing the cabinet down and wanting to come into the bathroom. He didn't understand what that meant. Sure. I'm not clear that I would either. Yeah. He assigned a 12th district car to answer a disturbance with a neighbor complaint. That was what he called it. Disturbance with a neighbor. Ah, okay. And sent a police car to the address she provided. So this is where things get a little dicey with how the call was reported. Mm. Police didn't show up for a little while longer. And it's most likely because the call was delegated as a disturbance with a neighbor instead of an active break-in. I was going to say, it sounds like disturbance is not an emergency. So they're just going to take their sweet ass time. Mm -hmm. Okay. 17 minutes later at 9.02 p.m., another 911 call came in concerning Ruthie's apartment. But this call came from a woman who was walking through the hallway and heard gunshots coming from the apartment. Two minutes later, at 9.04 p.m., another call came in from a different neighbor that reported hearing gunshots and screaming from apartment 1109. Oh, shit. McCoy's unit. Two more police cars were dispatched to the scene. Four policemen arrived at the door to Ruthie's apartment at 9.10 p.m. And when was her first call placed? 8.45 so, 25 minutes later. Jeez. They banged on the door and yelled, announcing that they had arrived, but there was no answer. Fuck. They called dispatch and asked them to call Ruthie's phone, but again, no answer. They could hear the phone actually ringing through mm-hmm. the door. Oh, because they didn't break in. They were just they didn't standing break outside. In. They were just standing outside. Yeah. Got it. The police needed to get inside because they thought that maybe she was being held against her will by whomever t- was trying to break in from the phone call. The officers went to the apartment building's office to get a key, but the key, unfortunately, didn't fit in the lock of Ruthie's door. Why not? What What is going on with these I'll, building managers? There's an answer to that. Okay. I'll, I'll let you know. The police tried to talk to the neighbors, but no one wanted to talk. Mm. No one answered the door at the unit across the hall, and the unit next to Ruthie's was vacant. Because they're probably scared of the police. That's why no one's answering. Correct. Yeah. Others didn't answer or wouldn't talk and, you know, say they heard anything. Uh, Police tried to contact the office again, but the janitor there said he didn't have any other key to her apartment. At 9.48 p.m., they left Ruthie Mae McCoy's building project. What? They didn't even try to get in? Like, kick the door down? Nope. They left. The next day... I know. (laughs) Sorry, that was a long exhale. But the thing is, we talk a a lot about inept cops on on this podcast, I mean. Well, and this episode. And... I have read instances where cops do the good thing and they do oh, the right course. thing. Of course, it happens. But shit, a lot of times it doesn't and people die. People die. Absolutely. So the next day, Deborah Lastly, who was an 11th floor neighbor of McCoy's, called the police. Ruthie would stop by Deborah's apartment on her way out of the building every morning. 
uh, when she was going to school. And then mm. she would stop back in when she was returning just to say hi and sure. check in. But th- that day, she didn't stop by. The next day, I mean, after the police right. are called. So Deborah had seen police at Ruthie's door the night before and was worried about her. uh, Six policemen and a handful of CHA, Chicago Housing Authority, security guards went to the scene. After? After Deborah called and was like, listen, this is really weird. I saw the police. She always comes by and she didn't. Yeah. So they were like, okay, we'll come out again and, you know, check it out. Good for that neighbor to be like, get your asses back out here. Yeah, good for Deborah. The police wanted to break down the door. But the CHA guards told them not to. And one said the tenant could sue the police if they did that. Oh, for fuck's sake. The tenant is the one calling for help. She called the night before. This is making me angry. (laughs) I'm angry, Kevin. It's awful. No, I know. I was angry right typing this this afternoon. Again, they knocked and they hollered for McCoy. And again, no answer. So what did they do? You tell me. They probably did nothing. They left. They left. Are you fucking serious? I was kidding. No, they left again. <sighs> the next day. Now we're on day two. Neighbor Deborah went to the project ob- office to mm-hmm. express her concern. At 1 p.m. that day, two days later, mind you, like yes. I just said, a project official got a carpenter who drilled through the lock. There in the bedroom of the apartment, lay Ruthie Mae McCoy, oh. lying in a pool of blood, hand over her chest, one shoe on and one shoe off. Oh. She had been shot four times in the chest. Oh my God. A bullet passed through her left shoulder, another went through her left thigh, a third hit the right side of her abdomen, pierced her liver, and went out the left side. The fourth and final bullet went through her upper right arm entered her chest, and severed her pulmonary vein. Oh, my goodness. This was the fatal shot that took Ruthie's life. Mm -hmm. Medical examiner Dr. Yupal Choi said Ruthie probably didn't die right away as she died of internal bleeding. That's even more horrific. However, he did say that she probably would not have survived even if being rushed to the hospital. Okay. It doesn't make it better, but like... But also, no telling how long it took her to It took her to actually die, So she's just lying there. there. Mm -hmm. Ruthie was officially pronounced dead at 4.35 p.m. on Friday, April 24th, 1987. Mm -hmm. So this is where we get into the actual horror of the racism and segregation in the city of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Ruthie's death was hardly reported when it happened. Mm -hmm. The main news sources in the city at the time weren't going to run stories on a project killing. Only if there's something extraordinary about it. What would be considered extraordinary for them? That's a good question. In the article I previously mentioned, which I'm, again, I'm relying heavily upon, Bogira writes, quote, Project killings just aren't news ordinarily. CHA residents are blown away, knifed, and kicked to death almost every week. Two or three times a week in warmer weather. Mm-hmm. McCoy was only one of three ABLA residents murdered in the waning days of April. Murders continued and resumed only two days after the discovery of McCoy's body. McCoy's death was really only reported in the black-owned newspaper The Defender. Detectives thought that the killers targeted Ruthie because of the SSI money that she had just come into. They noticed her dressing nicer, having some new things. Oh my goodness. Money that was supposed to better her life ended up being her demise. Ugh. 
So why is this story most well-known now? Why am I sitting here telling you this one in particular and not the countless others that occurred around the same time in the same area? I bet you're about to tell us. Mm. Yes. Police originally said it was probably someone Ruthie knew because there hadn't been any evidence of forced entry. So the news died down and life went on. There wasn't forced entry because they came through the medicine cabinet. That's right. That's my reveal. But we already know that. But but they were they would have been able to just put it back. Right. Like, exactly. So there's they wouldn't have known. Yeah. So ta ta. The news died down and life went on. Mm-hmm. However, the Tribune did run a story on Ruthie Mae McCoy's murder on June tenth, nineteen eighty seven. A second suspect had been arrested and indicted. Okay. And all of a sudden, the murder was getting attention due to the fact the detectives had determined that McCoy's killers had entered through her medicine cabinet. Well, duh. She told them that on the phone. But they didn't know what that meant because she was like, they're coming through the bathroom. You know what I mean? Mm. So they weren't, I don't think. And they, the, the they dispatcher, didn't connect it. They didn't connect it. The dispatcher didn't understand what that meant. I see. So the, you said they got a second suspect. They already had a first yeah, one? Yeah, they did. Okay. But it's not, I'm, it's, it hadn't been reported. Right. You know, because it's not, I mean, nothing is happening. Things are happening behind the scenes sure. with detectives. But, you know, nobody's reporting on it. Mm-hmm. And honestly, sometimes that's a good thing. Sure. I understand when detectives do that sometimes. Although in this case, it sounds like papers no, just didn't No, papers didn't pick care. it up because she was a black woman exactly. who got killed in the projects. And that's not interesting. To them, exactly. To them. Little, yes. So the, it started to get attention because of the medicine cabinet thing. I see. Her attackers had removed the medicine cabinet in the empty apartment adjacent to hers and climbed through the wall into her apartment. But the article was short in the Tribune and buried deep in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. It still seemed like no one actually cared. Uh, Bogira writes, the editor's indifference is understandable. No, it isn't. <laughs> in C- no, I, I know. In CHA Towers, babies have been tossed out of windows and teenagers shoved down elevator chutes. Oh, my God. Intruders sometimes bust right through apartment walls to rape and murder tenants. Oh, my God. So what's so unusual about a medicine cabinet murder? People in the projects weren't surprised by this, honestly, having been exposed and desensitized to this kind of violence for years. Apparently, intruders had been breaking into apartments through mirrors for almost a year at the Abbott High Rises. This was a thing that had been happening. So you would think that they would have... A broken in, just to knowing that the call was about a cabinet. You know, she did mention a cabinet, all of that. If they had a record of this for the past year of people coming in through the walls. Well, I don't think they did. I mm. don't think they kind of put the pieces together until Ruthie May I see. died. Oh, okay. So I think it was happening and the tenants knew about it. Got it. But the police and the detectives didn't have an idea yet about what was happening. Is what it sounds like to me. Because they were shit. But that doesn't mean that someone hadn't called and said they came through the wall. Right. And they don't care. Like right. They don't put anything out there. There was only about two and a half feet between the pipe chase. The pipe chase is the area between the walls where the plumbing is. So oh, okay. imagine wall, wall, plumbing. Yeah. This area between the walls is about two and a half feet. Okay. So like what? This maybe? Kevin is this. I'm trying moving to sh- his hand this big. in and out. <laughs> <laughs> Looks great I can't to me. see them. Where are the hands? <laughs> He's got crazy <laughs> contacts in. Um, and then the opening of the cabinet was only about a foot and a half wide. Wow. So it was pretty small. Yeah. 
and the cabinets were easily removed with only about six nails holding them to the wall. There were some areas of the building where you could climb up or down into apartments above and below through that pipe chase. Oh, hate that. Gang members would often take over two or more adjacent apartments and remove the cabinets to escape into different units should police or security Uh, ever raid them. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think the police really failed here, Kate, as we've been uh, saying. Yeah. And But of course, because Ruthie wasn't white, no one cared. Uh, the system failed her, as it often does in these situations. There was no departmental investigation or accountability by the CPD. Wow. I mean, Chicago that doesn't surprise department. me, but like, wow. Yeah. The police department said that the officers had acted accordingly and properly by not breaking the door down. They get a lot of hoax calls from the projects as well. So, you know, they weren't taking anything very seriously Mm. criminals in the projects would prey on the mentally ill because they make poor witnesses and unfortunately aren't deemed as very credible isn't that terrible it's the whole thing is terrible this whole thing is awful two defendants were charged in the case with the charges including murder home invasion armed robbery armed violence and residential burglary They were Edward Turner, 19, and John Hondras, 25. Detectives believe that the killers knew May was home at the time. Three items were stolen. A phone, a rocking chair, and a television. A rocking chair? Mm Mm-hmm. I assume that they went out the front door and did not crawl back through to get out. Well, yeah. I I mean, they were probably hiding in there when the police were outside. Or they, you know, crawled back through and got out the different way, got out the vacant apartment. I'm just trying to figure out how you get a fucking rocking chair through a medicine cabinet. They had to have I don't think they did. I think they probably put it, I don't know, no one saw what they did or what happened. Got it. You know what I mean? So I don't know where they, how they got the stuff out. However, it's a good point you bring up though, Kate, because um, the phone had to have been stolen after police left. Because yeah. it rang in the apartment when right. they were calling her. So they might have come back okay. after it, she was, you know, taken away and taken that stuff. They mm-hmm. didn't really take a They didn't take inventory. a good look around. Right. Yeah. My habit's almost falling off. Oh, no. Oh. It's because your headphones are, like, pulling it, I think. Joyful, joyful. Oh, oh Sister Act. Was it Sister Act 2? I think so. Yeah. That was, a, that was a deep cut. Thank you, Kate. <laughs> the chorus just performed that in a show recently. Ah. Uh stuck in my head um the police didn't know if any money was taken but all that was found in the apartment was just like loose change the killers were probably still on that floor the night everything was happening so freaky so regarding the key from the housing office that wouldn't work Mm -hmm. ruthie had changed her locks herself against cha regulations and she did not give the office a spare key The crime and burglary in the building was so bad that tenants often had to resort to getting things done themselves. She just wanted to be safer. She just wanted to be safe. Rather than wait weeks for CHA to change their locks. So from Bogira's article, he says, quote, Like other CHA projects made up mainly of high-rises, Abbott Holmes is characterized mostly by its stagnancy. Bounded by Roosevelt and 15th, Loomis and Ashland, those are streets. Mm-hmm. It's a little island with no through streets. The project's designers thought that by eliminating the streets, they could give residents more recreational space and a heightened sense of community. No, that is not why they did it. <laughs> they did it to segregate them from the rest of the yes. city. 
Today, Abbott's open spaces are seldom used, save by residents trying to get home before they get jumped. The lack of through streets has helped isolate the project from the rest of the world. No one can even drive through the the development. For Abbott residents, there's no need for streets. Most of them aren't going anywhere. Mm. Fear of crime keeps them pinned to their apartments day in and day out. That is not a way to live. No. That is awful. I mean, that's why Ruthie was just like, I have to get out of here. I have to get out of here. Something harder to understand welds many residents to this place for generations. They have kids and grandkids down the hall. So it's just like a never-ending cycle. It's a never-ending cycle that it's you basically can't break. Yeah. Because you don't have the means or resources, and no one is willing to assist. Yeah, Ruthie You're just was forgotten. getting. Ruthie was, you know, she found community at Mount Sinai Center, mm-hmm. and she started to understand what it was that she needed help with and needed to do to, yeah. to even try to get out of that situation. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like she was like really trying her best to to That's take some to steps say forward. That everyone else wouldn't want to try to to do that. But right. like they don't have the there's no resources. They don't have the means. Yeah, they don't have the means. They don't have the resources. They don't have people helping them. I think Ruthie was in a situ in a you know a situation where she was like, okay, so let me try this avenue, right, to get out of it. ABLA ranked fifth at the time in violent crime in the CHA developments. Mm. However, you didn't hear much about this project specifically because of its location on the south side. The project that got the most attention was Cabrini Green. Mm. And why? Because it was located not far from the Gold Coast in downtown Mm. near the white people. Right. And the Gold Coast, uh, let's talk about that for a little bit for people who are not Chicagoans. Oh, yeah, who aren't Chicagoans. I'm talking about this because we live here and we're like, oh, I know it. it." And people are like, what is a Loomis? Gold Coast is like the fancy place. It's like a bunch of rich people. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of white. Yep. Still. Still. Yeah. So the entire story and the violence, hatred, and societally inherited classism of people of color in the city of Chicago and Chicago houses. Wow. It's okay. Take a breath. Wow. The entire story and the violence, hatred, and societally inherited classism of people of color in the city of Chicago and Chicago housing projects led to one of the greatest horror movies and horror movie legends of all time. Candyman. Don't look in that mirror, Kevin. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, people. It's been a little too There's a mirror right beside me. (laughs) Candyman was released in 1992 and was directed by Bernard Rose and written by Clive Barker and Bernard Rose. The movie follows graduate student Helen Lyle, played by Virginia Madsen, who is researching the Candyman legend while exploring the Chicago housing projects. Mm -hmm. Candyman was a black artist named Daniel... Robitaille, Robitaille, who was lynched in 1890 for having an affair with a white woman whose portrait he was painting at the time. Is that true? Was there a Daniel that lived that was an artist? No, that's fictional. Okay. And the original story that Clive Barker wrote, Uh I'll talk about this in a little bit more in depth, but the movie story is largely based on the actor that played Candyman's understanding of local history and his experience as a black man so he they actually rewrote the script of the movie threw it out rewrote it because of what he brought in oh and is that tony todd tony todd yeah yeah, yeah. interesting okay so i mean i'll go into it yeah 
The woman's father, the white woman who the Candyman artist was having a Mm -hmm. thing with, hires a gang to beat him, saw off his hand, and replace it with a hook. He's then covered in honey, and bees sting him to death. Mm -hmm. In death, he is known as Candyman, expertly played by horror icon Tony Todd. The legend goes that if you say Candyman five times into a mirror, a man with a hook for a hand appears and kills you. Helen ignores the warning and says it, prompting his appearance. And in his famous and horrific speech, he says, They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood if not for shedding? With my hook for a hand, I'll split you from your groin to your gullet. Mm -hmm. I came for you. After the movie's release, it became sort of an urban legend on its own. Mm-hmm. The saying of Candyman five times into the mirror, which is reminiscent of the Bloody Mary. Yeah, right. Thing. The movie is linked to the story of Ruthie Mae McCoy. Because in the film, Candyman's first victim is Ruthie Jean, a resident of Cabrini Green, murdered by someone that came through her bathroom mirror. Mm-hmm. She calls police for help, but no one came. Her neighbors say that Ruthie Jean is crazy. Candyman largely takes place and was partially filmed at the actual Cabrini Green site. Okay. Which is on Chicago's near north side, like we said. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like most Chicago Housing Authority project housing, the ideas around constructing it were born of good intentions. That's not what happened. Right. Racism caused immense neglect and it became the scene of actual horrors. When the film crew came to shoot at Cabrini Green, they really didn't have to do much to make it convincing. That's terrifying. Right? The legend of Candyman comes out of the absence of law enforcement in Chicago public housing and desperation to escape. The residents don't fear Candyman as much as they fear the police. Yeah. Candyman was an excuse for the residents to escape to a legend or a fairy tale if you will. The neglect and horrific violence the residents faced are not caused by one murderous man, but centuries of abuse. Saying the name in the mirror five times is a callback to Ruthie May. They came through the mirror. Right. They got her. It's a symbol of unwanted horrors that abound. Cabrini Green was closed in 2000. Okay. And demolition began at that time as well. It was part of an ambitious city plan to transform all Chicago public housing that I talked about earlier in the episode. Mm -hmm. Another racial prejudice the movie brings up is interracial relationships. That's a big theme in the movie. The character of Helen Lyle is meant to, in a way, be a reincarnation. Why did I say it like that? You're you're having some issues. I'm sorry, Kate. I don't think you can blame that on the contacts. You don't have to apologize to me messing with you. But you look great. Thank you. (laughs) Another racial prejudice the movie brings up is interracial relationships. The character of Helen Lyle is meant to, in a way, be a reincarnation of Candyman's white lover. Mm -hmm. The risk of having an interracial relationship in the history of the United States is staggering and very real. So in the late 19th century, when Candyman is murdered, white mobs in real in real US history mm-hmm. would take out their anger through lynchings particularly of black men. Right. The number of killings began to rise dramatically toward the end of the 19th century. Violence was so popular that mobs would put together lynching bees. Oh. Which is akin to like a quilting bee or a spelling bee. Okay. But murder. Right. Candyman's lynching in the film was a reality for many, especially any black man having a relation or even suspected of like having a relationship looking at Mm -hmm. doing something to a white woman. 
just to go back a little, and maybe I'm just re- trying to read something into something that isn't. Are the bees in the movie supposed to symbolize lynching bees? That's what I originally thought. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I think that can be left open to interpretation. Okay. I'd say yes, but I'm going to go into a little bit more history about the story and maybe what it's I mean, based I know on. that they covered him in honey and right. all of that. So, okay. Right. So the whole, oh, this is my next paragraph. Kate, perfect. I love it. Kate knows what's up. (laughs) The whole Candyman story was written by British horror writer Clive Barker from a story called The Forbidden. In the story, Candyman haunted a public housing tower in Liverpool, where Barker is from. Okay. So this is really interesting because this is my kind of connection to Chicago public housing because when I first moved to Chicago I worked for I think I might have talked about this already but when I worked for a company called American Theater Company right who the artistic director was PJ Paparelli Mm -hmm. and he had been working for years on a uh, verbatim play about the Chicago public housing situation and he had relationships with several people in the city on the south side who had either worked or lived or had seen all the horrors of being down there, but also showed the good side. And the, there was like people banding together and having community yeah. amongst all this horrible stuff. So he kind of showed the myriad of the public housing system. Mm-hmm. And the play got put on called The Projects. And Angie White, uh, who was in Sunset Baby at Timeline, oh, okay. was in it as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I got to know her through working on I put I had to do workshops and stuff for gotcha. that. Public housing is a is a big thing and I think also a big issue over in the UK. Okay. In England and Scotland. Mm-hmm. But it's called like council housing, council estates. Oh, okay. And I don't want to speak too much to it because I, you know, I did live there but I didn't really have any experience sure. with that, but he was over in Scotland working with a theater company over there on like a version of the projects that he had done in Chicago. And so it was kind of like migrating to a different culture to kind of learn about, you know, what are the similarities? What are the differences? Yeah. And that's when he was over there, he got hit by a car and passed away. I was just going to ask if I knew he was in Scotland when it happened. I did not realize like that's why he was there. Yeah. It's really sad. I really liked him a lot. But that was that's my connection to this whole thing. Because I was like when he was like finishing writing the play so that it could be produced. I was working with him on like putting together workshops for it. Anywho, back to Bart Clive Barker's The Forbidden Story, Mm -hmm. which Candyman comes from. So Barker's Candyman was a tall white man with blonde hair in the story. Oh, okay. And the story definitely does incorporate other urban legends into its lore, such as Bloody Mary, who appears after you say her name several times into a mirror. Stop looking at that mirror, Kevin. If I say it in my mind, does it work? Um, also, not. the legend of the hooked hand man that terrorizes teenage lovers at Lover's Lane. Oh. Then there's the biblical story of Samson, which is also listed among those additional ledges, legends. In the book of Judges, the Philistines rule over Israel. Samson gets with a Philistine woman who becomes his wife, which crosses a racial line at this time in history. Mm. And he says a, he slays a lion uh, that I guess has bees in its stomach that are making honey. Oh. Hence the Candyman reference here. Oh, I see. Okay. For me, that symbolizes more of like the bees, like the lynching bees that we were talking yeah. about. So I kind of like that you pointed that out, Kate, because, you know, a lot of this is all sim. 
not the whole story, I sure. should say, but regarding like the fictional stories, right? You know, it's symbolism. Mm-hmm. So I would relate it more to kind of what you said than I think this. Well, I think especially because it was adapted from his story. Exactly. It, it is. It can be left to interpretation. Exactly. So regardless of the fictional origins of Candyman, the story and the titular character are all based on historical racial violence that people still face today. Mm. Um, it's interesting to note, like I was mentioning earlier, that the actor that plays Candyman, Tony Todd, brought his own personal history and knowledge of racial injustice to his character. Mm -hmm. Uh, Director and writer Bernard Rose was super impressed by this, and they actually scrapped the original version of the script and gave Todd more creative control over the character and the origins. That's awesome. Because I want to point out Bernard Rose and Clive Barker are both white dudes. Yes. And and I'll get into something I was going to talk to you about earlier. Yeah. Tony Todd and director Bernard Rose constructed the backstory to be directly linked to racism and urbanization, especially from Rose's decision to set it in Chicago. Mm. Candyman is very much part of the urban landscape, Todd said in a 2011 interview. I can't go into I can't go to any hood in this country without total recognition from people who live there. In a 2015 interview with Rose, he mentioned that the Illinois Film Commission actually suggested using Cabrini Green because it was a scary place. Oh, okay. Yeah. I wonder how he came up on Chicago. Right. From an article about Candyman on allthat'sinteresting.com by Morgan Dunn, she writes, quote, Perhaps the scariest thing about Candyman isn't his potential for violence and terror, but his ability to force audiences to think about the people like McCoy who were being demonized in the Cabrini Green homes. I would also say the larger you know, Chicago Housing Authority, and the very real terror Black Americans have faced throughout history. The true story of Candyman is about much more than a hook-wielding monster. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Candyman, I'm so sorry, Kate. You're fine. You're going to have to edit and be like, this bitch. (laughs) This nun bitch. Um, (laughs) Real quick, when I was a little kid and I had to get my tonsils taken out in the second grade, my parents took me down to Charleston, West Virginia to have the procedure done. And it was at a Catholic hospital. Mm -hmm. And I had just learned what this means at the time. He's giving the finger. Yeah. And my dad, after I had the surgery, I woke up and my dad and mom were like, oh my God, how are you feeling? And then I just looked at them and I went like this and gave them the middle <laughs> finger. And then they had nuns come through to like check on all the patients. Yeah. And so a nun walked in and each of them from either side grabbed my arm and held it down so I wouldn't <laughs> give her the finger. <laughs> Such a little rebel. Such a little shit. <laughs> Candyman was reimagined in 2021 with a sequel directed by Nia DaCosta and written by Jordan Peele, Wynne Rosenfeld, and Nia DaCosta. It takes place in the present day after the Cabrini Green Towers had been torn down. Mm -hmm. Artist Anthony McCoy. McCoy. Yes, yes. Played by, uh, you might have to help me here, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. Sounded great to me. uh, And his partner, Brianna Cartwright, played by... Tayona Paris move into a loft in the now gentrified area where Cabrini Green once stood. Mm-hmm. Anthony learns the local legends of Candyman and he uses this legend to inspire and inform his newest artistic works. However, he might be bringing Candyman back. I know that's not the theme song to the movie. I I actually really liked the sequel. What did you think about it? I liked it too. So what I was telling you before is that I 
just to prepare so I could like have an image of things in my head for this episode, mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that I watched both of them. I saw the original when I was like 11. The newer one, I just watched a few days ago. And as a kid, I did not compute all of the history and like the meanings of things. Neither did I. But watching the newer one, I will say it was incredibly depressing and it does shine a light on all of those injustices and the racial inequality and just societal problems as a whole that we continue to deal with and it was sad it was a it was a different it, kind it's a of different horror feel, movie. isn't it yeah well, i liked that about it it's a different kind of horror movie because i remember that when i saw the first one as a kid i was really scared because i was scared of everything face value but I will say, then I rewatched the original, and as I was watching it, I went. I said to myself, I think this was written and directed by a white person, mm, mm-hmm. because it definitely gives this white savior vibe. I get that, yeah. Particularly with Virginia Madsen's character. So then I looked it up, and I was like, oh, okay, two white dudes. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Because Nia DaCosta, Jordan Peele, I mean, obviously they have a black crew. A, uh, and perspective. Yes. Yeah. And it was almost two different stories. I got what they were doing with the first one, but the second one really hits home about all of the history. I think it hits a little harder. Yeah. And I think when I, because I watched the the first one again a few a couple years ago, uh, and I hadn't seen it in the longest time. And mm-hmm. it really got to me just with all of what we're talking about. I was sort of like understanding and interpreting things in a different way. Right. As regard, you know, having lived here, understanding the history, mm-hmm. you know, their relationship, him as a black man and a white woman and her being like the savior. Cause that's what I was taking from it as well. Mm-hmm. But the second one to me really gets to the nitty gritty of it. Yes. And agreed. I love that. Yeah. And uh, the movie looks at the tale and legend through urbanization and harm done to black communities as they were forced into segregated housing and then completely neglected, then kicked out because of gentrification. Yep. So Nia DaCosta said in an interview with Time magazine, quote, the original film definitely fed into a fear of the black community and the black man in particular. I didn't want to do this approach of, oh God, this terrible place where terrible things are happening because these brutes are living here. Mm. This is a community that was chronically underserved for a very long time. Yes. And that is the story of Ruthie Mae McCoy, the Chicago Housing Projects, and the movie that brought the history to light through the horror genre, Candyman. That was great. I'm glad that we did this episode because I don't think I'm the only person who didn't get the history from the original. Again, I saw it when I was a child and I didn't see the new one when it first came out. Mm -hmm. So for anyone that hasn't seen the new one yet, I'd say watch the first one. If you can watch the first one first, because I thought the new one was a remake. No, no, no. It's a sequel. Right. When it came out. Because Vanessa Williams is in the first one and this one. And at that moment where she's like, don't say yeah. the name. Give me chills. Mm-hmm. Back when it came out, I assumed it was a remake. I don't know why I had that in my brain. So when I watched it, I was like, oh, wow, this really doesn't feel like the first one, even though it's been so long since I right. saw it. And then I watched the first one. I was like, oh. It kind of exponentially builds upon the themes that the first one sort of lays out, but doesn't like directly yes. hit on. Yeah. Which I think uh, I'm glad that Tony Todd brought his experience 
yes. to it because I think that's what elevated it and made his performance so good. But I don't think it gets to the level that the second one does in regards to how we think about, you know, racial inequality, especially mm-hmm. in like urbanization and in Chicago and exactly. All of those and again, I mean, it was two white dudes right. who mm-hmm. wrote that white director and it makes me wonder, like, God, what was the story before Tony Todd brought his Well, I'm, I mean, you could probably read it. Like, it's a Clive Barker True. short story called The Forbidden. Yeah, that was a great episode. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for bringing I it. I enjoyed researching it. It's interesting, yeah. I shouldn't say I enjoyed researching it. I think researching it was eye-opening. I'm glad to know the background of all of that. And I also think that that is what makes horror movies successful is that when they are grounded in something very real and the true horror of what is going on with the movie, are your nails okay? They're fine. I'm sorry. I'm listening. <laughs> I just, it, it was kind of hurting my nail bed. He's got some serious coffin shaped black nails. And, and one came off before I left. He's devastated by anyway, it. Anyway, no, go ahead. But I think that's what makes those kind of movies successful is, I mean, it's really a true, yeah. it's true horror yeah, yeah, yeah. that comes through. And then, but it's giving it a lens of something that is, as much as I hate to say this, a little bit more easy to digest for some people Sure, sure. in in the realm of a horror movie. Yeah. Um, I don't really know where I was going with that. No, but... I, I love that you bring that up, Kate. And I'm glad you did. Because I think for me, when people ask, why do you like horror so much? I, I don't know. But when I watch horror movies, mm-hmm. especially older, as, in, as you know, in my 30s. Yeah. It's easier for me to analyze the symbolism and what it is actually saying or yeah. trying to say. Mm-hmm. Like... That's why I like it so much is because the lens is so interesting and spooky and scary and it's trying to say this, but it also has something completely different underneath at the surface. Yeah. And so when I watch these movies, like when I was watching The Exorcist, Mm -hmm. to me that was like a commentary on faith and all of that. And so I think the horror genre does a really great job of bringing light to issues, but sometimes people don't go beyond the face value of the scares and the scariness of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's so interesting is because there is so much more behind right. behind that sort of facade of horror that people don't take seriously. You know, people don't like to be scared, but fear is such an important part of who we are as like a human race and species. We just don't want to deal with it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to like right. confront it. But that's, I feel like what horror is trying to do. Yeah. Is making it. Is make you aware. Mm-hmm. And that's it, everybody. <laughs> Have a wonderful Halloween. Happy Halloween. And Ooh. it's great. Happy Halloween. That is a Happy terrifying Halloween. voice. Uh, an old nun voice. I'm trying to. I was like, where are you going Happy, with it? Happy Halloween. Okay. Uh, I need to drink. Yeah, we can get you a beer. Thank you, Kate. I have a beer going. (laughs) And you can do all the things, the comments, the questions, the likes, the hates, which I hope you don't hate it. No, rate, (laughs) review, and subscribe. Although I will say after we shouted that out the last time. Did someone leave bad reviews? Well, they didn't write it because it was on Spotify and you can't leave a written review. But every time that we mentioned, hey, leave us a review, give us a rating. Our rating goes down. <laughs> so our rating went down. You know what? Never mind. Don't do anything. <laughs> just stop listening. And go. Don't stop listening. Well, if you don't like it. Well, no. If you don't like it, keep listening. Because <laughs> maybe we'll say something to change your mind. Hey. Or not. Wait, we didn't do at Horrorwood Podcast. We just did. Did we? 
You did. Good job. So so follow (laughs) us on the socials at Horrorwood Podcast. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Horrorwood Podcast. Like Heather Shaw. Heather Shaw. Happy Halloween. Be a Heather Shaw. Be a Heather Shaw. Don't be a one star subscriber. (laughs) (laughs) And or if you want to email us or email us your stories, your horror stuff. We want your true crime stories like your own. Like if you experienced something. Tell us about it. If you committed a true crime, maybe don't tell don't us because we don't want to be... And we won't read that. Yeah, we don't want to be accomplices. No. But, but tell us your ghosty stories. Sit them all in. People are sitting them in. I'm loving it. I'm loving it too. I can't wait They're for so the next episode that we do. So. so that's... Our Gmail is horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com if you want to write in. Now we have all the things done and we can say... Peace! Halloween!